online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique, the world through the lens of wine and spirits. This week, Long Island, New York's nearest wine region, forks into the Atlantic Ocean. Its maritime climate harnessed to produce wines that are winning new fans the world over. We'll explore the wineries and find out what makes the place so special for wine. Long Island, a short-ish hop from the hustle and bustle of Manhattan, extending just over 100 miles to the east, splitting dramatically into a fork, north and south. And that is really where wine country begins. New York State has 11 AVAs or appellations, but only two are really famous for international grape varieties. The Finger Lakes at the top of the state and its cool climate. And then there's maritime Long Island with its sea breezes and stunning sandy beaches. Vines only arrived on Long Island in the 1970s and it's only very recently in the grand scheme of things that its wines have begun to garner attention in the wine capitals of the world. We'll hear about some medal winners that you need to try later on. But first, by way of an introduction to Long Island as a wine region, here's Karim Massoud, winemaker at both Pormonic and Palmer vineyards, with an introduction to Long Island's wineries. So Long Island is, is a maritime wine region uh, where we are an island surrounded by water. And so that results in a moderating influence in our climate and uh, and the resultant wines are also moderate in, in, in style and balance. And it is properly an island, isn't it? Because I wasn't even sure when I came here because it feels like it's it's joined almost to Manhattan, but it, it is yeah. technically an island, isn't it? Absolutely. It is very, it is very much an, an island and it is long, hence the name Long Island. It's very long. And so here we are on eastern Long Island where the where it forks, uh, the North Fork and the South Fork both jut out into the ocean and the bay and the Long Island Sound. And so we have these bodies of water that act as air conditioners in the spring and heat sinks in the, in, in the fall uh, that sort of shift our season to a late start but a long finish. And that is the defining feature, uh, that presence of water, isn't it? Absolutely. As far as the climate, that, that, that has everything to do with defining our, our climate is the, is the maritime climate. And you're the president of the Association of, of Wineries here. Um, it's um, by wine standards. We're talking you know, kind of boutique here, aren't we? That's right. We're, you know, most of us on Long Island are really in the, the small, uh, in, from a global perspective, are small producers. Uh, and the region really is small by, by global standards. We, we're not growing more than 3,000 acres of vineyards as, as a region. But that said, uh, we do, we, we, we think we, <laughs> we're, we're fortunate that we have a disproportionate sort of uh, uh, um, um, attention because of our proximity to New York City. And uh, and we enjoy this these wonderful demographics of the New Yorkers being in our own backyard, who are increasingly are discovering that they have fine wine in their own backyard, and, and that that's really exciting. 
Mm, it's very flat here as well, isn't it? It is very flat here. And uh, if you're a wine lover that sort of doesn't jive with what you know for fine wine on one hand, on the other hand, uh, the explanation is that our, our soils truly drain exceptionally well. We have uh, sandy, gravelly subsoils. And if you were a soil engineer, that's exactly what you would be putting down to, 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 to set up an ideal drainage system. And that's what we have here. And th that explains how we are able to grow fine wine, world-class wines on, on, on a flat topography, not unlike uh, some places in Bordeaux, which are also you know, fairly flat. And so we, we have a lot of parallels with, with uh, a place like Bordeaux, um, including the flat topography. Yeah, and your soils here, have, uh, the makeup of them has been likened to Grave, hasn't it? Yes, exactly. Uh, again, we, have, uh, we do have uh, sand and gravel in the subsoils. Most of the topsoils, at least on the North Fork, are pr predominantly a sandy loam. Uh, and, and on the South Fork in the Hamptons, you'll see some heavier uh, Bridgehampton loam, which is a, a more fertile, uh, heavier soil. But the predominant soil type will be a, a sandy loam with sandy, gravelly subsoils. And there are a lot of different grape varieties grown here. A, 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 that's right. Absolutely, a, yeah. almost yeah. bonkers yeah. amount, actually. That's right. But what do you kind of, uh, what would you say Long Island is sort of most famous for in wine terms? You know, Long Island is really known for Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, Merlot, Cabernet, Franc, as far as varieties. But we're, we're also known just for, for the, uh, the, the wine style, which is going to be a, a moderate alcohol well-balanced wines of character. But as you remarked, I mean, there's a number, I mean, there are dozens of varieties being grown here. And that has to do with our relative youth. On one hand, we're celebrating our 50th anniversary. So we've been around for 50 years, but in the world of wine, 50 years is, is, is the blink of an eye. So we're still, and we're in the new world. In the new world, you always have this, this sense of, of, of you know, uh, experimentation and innovation and, and, and being open to trying something new. And I think a lot of us have on one hand wanted to jump on a horse of celebrating one variety like Merlot or Cabernet Franc, which clearly do well on Long Island. And, and some of us have also wanted to celebrate the fact that we can do many things well, not unlike places like Bordeaux or Northern Italy, where it's kind of had hard to pin down just one variety that does well. And so um, as we go into the future, you know, we're, we're still experimenting with new varieties. And in fact, we uh, globally, if you're a vintner anywhere, you're thinking about new varieties because climate change is forcing you to do that. You speak for two wineries. You run two wineries, uh, both heritage names here on Long Island. Uh, just tell us a bit about Paul Monarch and Palmer. Uh, so uh, Pamanak is very much my family's baby. My, my parents founded it in 1983. My two brothers and I are still you know, involved full time at, at Pamanak. And uh, um, it, we're celebrating our 40th anniversary this year. And coincidentally, it happens to be the 40th anniversary at Palmer Vineyards as well, which my family acquired in uh, 2018. Both wineries uh, have a, a heritage and a commitment of quality winemaking. I mean... My father, from very early on, recognized that we would never be able to compete on a global stage in terms of quantity. We, so with the only hope and aspiration was to compete on quality. And so we very much see ourselves as a multi-generational um, fine wine estate. And so I'm the second generation together with my brothers. And, he, and my brothers and I all have children. 
And so the third generation is, is growing up now. And that's, that's, uh, that's our hope and aspiration. And there are others like us on Long Island as well, where uh, whether they're family or not, where they're, we're looking to, to, to um, sort of perpetuate this, this evolving on Long Island. Well, it's been fantastic tasting the wines at both properties and, and such a diversity, as I say, and that, that style that you mentioned, that kind of, dare I say, it, European style in the, in the wine. So um, thanks very much indeed for introducing us uh, to Long Island. It was my absolute pleasure. And I invite, you know, you and any of your listeners come back and visit us. We're open seven days a week year round. And there's a lot to taste. You know, there's a lot to discover. Just like any wine region, you have to come out and actually go there and interact with the producers and ask questions. And you never know when, you know, someone, uh, a producer might pull out a surprise, a surprise bottle for you to taste. Karim Massoud offering us an introduction to Long Island and its wine riches. So, time for a little of Long Island's wine history, which is celebrating half a century next year. Roman Roth, winemaker and partner at Wolfer Estate, who's been on Long Island for three of those past five decades, picks up the story. Well, uh, in 74, the first, there was a, a young couple, the Hargraves, they started here and brought vinifera. And this is what's unique, that Long Island is all vinifera, basically. Um, versus hybrids and mixed in other, you know, further Finger Lakes or other regions, uh, upstate and other can, other states. So that's made Long Island always a little bit special. Our climate is absolutely unique. That was the one great vision that they could see, that we are on the same latitude as Madrid and Naples. Great sun influence. We're surrounded by the Atlantic, so we have wonderful sea breeze, which protects our wines in winter. No winter damage, no spring frosts. Lovely, elegant, cool summers, like cool nights, hot, warm days. And then, of course, it's the last area in New York State to get a frost. So if you have healthy vines, you have long hang time and get great maturity of your grapes. So great location. The winery started at the time as the potato farmer slowly didn't make any more money. So land became available. Of course, now it became a race with real estate owners and, and mansions. But... There was a time when it was still manageable where you could buy land, fairly normal price. So that was a good timing where the winery started. Yeah, at the beginning, of course, people didn't want to touch Long Island with a stick mm -hmm. because Long Island, you know, if I entertain my friends, it has to be Chateau such and such from France or Brunello, who knows what, from Italy or Napa Valley. It took as many years. And the, the most important thing is our style is elegant, Wines with finesse, with esprit, with 13, 12 volume percent wine. And at the time in America, where everything was sweet, even ketchup is sweeter in, in America, people wanted fat, big Chardonnays, all French ones. And we weren't fat and we weren't French, so it was difficult. But we persisted. People who didn't know, understand wines or understood, for example, we made a dry rosé and everybody drank sweet blushes here. But the people who have been to Provence and drank a dry rosé, they said, wow. And this is, I never tasted such a wine from America, you know, from, from California, from anywhere. Uh, you know, so the same with our Chardonnays and then later the Sauvignon Blancs and then the Cap Franc. So we slowly and steadily carved out this niche and now things have changed. People eat three vegetables and a tiny piece of protein. You know, it used to be one big steak and the vegetable was a glass of red wine. <laughs> and now people, the, the food has changed and these elegant, these balanced wines have found a home and are now very fashionable and hot. 
You mentioned rosé, and you are regarded by everyone here as a rosé pioneer. You've really kind of um, sort of uh, set the ground running with rosé. Just explain um, what you do and why you decided to do that. Well, we have become a rosé. We've created the rosé cult wine, I would say, even with our summer in a bottle, which is just wild. It's the hottest thing. It's the It's the second most sold rosé in America in the over $20 category, which is only, I think, Minuti is ahead of us. So it's quite an achievement for a Long Island winery. It came that we always took rosés serious. You know, a lot of people treat their rosé like a garbage can and, oh, well, you know, rosé is for who knows what, make it sweet. And it was taken, it was treated like an evil stepchild. And even when I grew up in wineries where I worked, you know, it, well, and that's what how it tasted. So if you take it serious, if you deliberately make a decision when to pick and not just on the side or, or bleed, a lot of people make rosé by bleeding, which makes great red wine, but it makes a flabby rosé. And who wants a flabby affair? I always joke, but mm. it makes a flabby wine. We want the vibrant, fresh, elegant, the focused wine that says something. It's balanced and elegant. It's rosé. It should be fun by the pool or by the beach or wherever you are, tennis court. So we took it like this. Christian Wolf, the founder, was certainly right into this. I think he also could smell that maybe rosé gets easier, except that the prejudice, there was this terrible prejudice, and we all know how bad prejudice can be in racism and anything, and the same with wine. And rosé was the wine that could break that through that glass ceiling, and, and it has, basically. And so now... Taught lots of young people come to the winery. I'm getting older, our customers getting younger, or both. <laughs> it's like policemen get younger as well. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and uh, you, uh, as you mentioned, um, uh, born raised in uh, Germany. Germany. Uh, you've made wine very successfully in Australia. Um, how the hell did you end up in Long Island 30 something years ago? It was fate, I guess. Uh, as I mentioned, we were on the way my wife is Australian we were on the way to Australia there was a job offer in New York I thought well let me check it out because most Australian wine is sold in the UK or in, in New York at the time or in America I should say and well the, and practice my English skills and of course a German ex-German guy Christian Wolfer answers the phone so I didn't practice any English <laughs> And he told me that Manhattan is half an hour away, which in truth is two and a half hours away. So it's a long island, but it worked. It got us here. But there was a couple of things. He said, buy whatever you need to buy. He was a venture capitalist and he had, had funds to, to make this dream a reality. So we bought whatever needed to be done, built the most beautiful, gorgeous winery, maybe on the East Coast. Most important is spent created a team, a quality team that can work in the vineyard. It starts in the vineyard. And so where we, we can, you know, you have to fly too far away to see vineyards that are this manicured. And that's what makes the difference. You can, everybody makes good wine in a good year, but we make great wines in the difficult years and we make consistently great wines. So when a journalist or a wine distributor commits to you, they don't look like a fool a year later because they have recommended you, because we are just as good next year, if not better. You talk about the manicured vineyards, but um, actually you're also taking uh, sustainability very seriously here. You know, they don't always go hand in hand, manicured vineyards and sustainability, but you, you definitely, it's, it's part of your tagline for the winery here, isn't it? Uh, manicured comes from hand labor. 
not from chemicals. There is a tremendous effort that we put in into positioning clusters, shoots, fruit, thinning. That's what is a way to get this manicure and get extra ripening and concentration, which you don't get if you just do machines. And if you're never into hand labor, I've seen this at wineries. We pick all our fruit by hand for our white horse wines, for example. If you don't already have lots of hand labor during the year, you can't all of a sudden create a team that knows how to pick grapes. You have usually amateurs then picking grapes, and that's a disaster. So it, it's a whole process. The whole year is, is always this one goal to bring the best, ripest quality, healthiest fruit in year after year. And that comes starts with a team, starts with your commitments. Sustainability is a key where you become more uh, tolerant. For example, in the older days, you would just use all a tiny area with red mites, the whole vineyard was sprayed with, fung with, with insecticides. Now we don't, we don't spray any more fungus insecticides the last couple of years because we found, a, we achieved a balance in the vineyard. Uh, so there's predatory mites, you know, your red mites that you don't want, and it has worked. So and even if there would be one tiny outbreak, it doesn't destroy the whole vineyard. So that's, it's, it's, it's a, well, it's maturing and I think getting confidence in your own vineyard, in your system and in your practices. You produce a whole range of wines. I've been fortunate enough to taste a, a good number of them, but by, uh, by no means the whole portfolio. Um, if you were going to introduce someone to one of your wines that sort of spoke of Long Island and spoke of what you're about, then which would it be? Well, the nice thing is, I think you just tasted through. There is a house style or a winemaker style. The reds had a similar message than the whites. You go many times to wineries and... Rosés are one thing, sparklings taste completely different, reds are like, that works for some wineries, but we have a very clear line across the board. And so, so you will always recognize this, I think, doesn't matter if it's our rosé, our whites. Of course, they're all my children, some are just smarter than the others. It's hard to pick, but there are a couple of wines that are absolutely can stand up with the very best in the world that we make. Our Pearl Chardonnay is one of these wines, for example, can age 30 years Long Island Chardonnay can age 30 years and is still delicious. That's a statement, that's an achievement that not many wine regions can say. Our Merlots, year after year, we make grape Merlots. It's the highest, the grapes of Roth Merlot, for example, is the highest rated red wine on the whole East Coast. It's gotten over 90 points from Parker or from wine and uh, spectator wine enthusiasts almost every year or two or three in some years. So at least 18 or 19 of over 90 point wines just for that wine. So there is that, again, we're breaking still the prejudice and glass ceiling, but there are wines in blind tastings. You would never guess that this is from Long Island. You would think it's one of the great wine regions that people think about. Roman Roth at Wolfer Estate. Well, as he said, the maritime climate of Long Island is very special when it comes to making wine. Miguel Martin is a Long Island veteran and he's now general manager at McCall Wines. We are located in the North Fork and the, uh, where the, most of the wineries are located in the North Fork. So we have a maritime climate. We have the Peconi Bay uh, influence and the Atlantic Ocean as well. Uh, Orvinius is about two and a half miles, three kilometers from from the from the water so definitely we have uh, a unique maritime climate uh, with uh, the breeze the saltiness or soil um you know if you go deep about three feet about a meter deep or soil is pure sand like you can find at the beach so the 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 wine the the water really percolates pretty fast and quickly 
so the vines had to sometimes go really deep to uh, get the, the water sources. And the growing conditions with that maritime climate, um, there are a few parallels with the coastal side of Bordeaux, aren't there? That's correct, yes. Yeah, we uh, definitely share some uh, similarities to uh, Bordeaux. Yeah, I mean, definitely we have more of the maritime, more of the uh, breeze and than Bordeaux does, but um, yes, definitely. And uh, here at McCall, which uh, grape varieties are you growing? Because you've got a reasonable number, haven't you? Uh, yes, we do. Uh, I mean, we uh, we specialize in Pinot Noir. Uh, Ross McCall uh, established the winery in 2007, and uh, he loved Burgundy wines uh, and Bordeaux wines as well. Um, so we have uh, one of the largest uh, Pinot Noir uh, vineyards in New York. We have all multiple clones uh, uh, planted and uh, some other clones uh, uh, ripe earlier, some of them ripe later, some um, the grapes are tighter clusters, very uh, small berries, so produce more intense. Uh, um, but I always said that we do the manicure and the pedicure of the vines. Uh, being so close to the water, and, uh, we get a lot of humidity and saltiness, so we had to remove a lot of the clusters. Uh, we had to remove a lot of leaves, all done by him. So Pinot Noir is definitely is or one of our main wines. Uh, however, we have uh, on the reds, we have Merlot, Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, Syrah. Um, and then on the whites, we have Sauvignon Blanc and Chardonnay. Uh, and last year, we planted San Albariño, which I'm very excited. Uh, being a native uh, of Spain, uh, I think Albariño has a great potential here in uh, Elon Island. It certainly does, because you've got that uh, maritime condition. Uh, you've got that, um, it's really windy here, actually, and it's quite salty, the air. And of course, if you go to the Rias Baixas, um, that's exactly what you get there, isn't it? Right. Well, I planted the first Albarino vineyard in Elon Island when I was working for another winery. So I planted 15 years ago, thinking that uh, that's precisely what you just said, you know, uh, the Albarino is a grape that uh, has a thick skin so they can handle the humidity and the breeze. Um, it's not a heavy set producer, but it produces uh, uh, beautiful wines. And so I was thinking, well, let's plant some Albarino, what happened? You know? And I'm very lucky to see that other wineries had joined the Albarino move uh, and plant Albarino in Lone Island because I think that grape has a lot of potential. And it's going well so far, the Albarino, is it? Well, we planted last year. Uh, and they're healthy. They're doing well. Yeah, I mean, they they looks very healthy. You know, probably we won't be releasing any wines until five or six years from now. But uh, really, really excited. And you were explaining to me earlier um, that um, the picking decisions are really fundamental here. And I tasted your um, Cabernet Franc, really delicious wine. Um, and and you're doing multiple passes, um, particularly with. Uh, Cabernet Franc, but with other grape varieties as well. Just explain a bit more about that. Well, uh, for my call, it's about uh, quality. Uh, it's never about quantity. Um, so if we have to remove clusters to intensify the the, uh, uh, the fruit character of the, of the grapes, uh, we'll do so. We are 100% stay grow. We don't buy grapes or juice or wine. So um, the idea is to produce the most delicious wines that we can possible produce and make. I'm sure that you hear that many times that the wines are made at the vineyard. And it's truly uh, right. Um, you know, we we know that 
if we start off with uh, some beautiful grapes, uh, intensify the varietal character of the wines, um, or Java, it will be a lot easier, and uh, the reward will be a delicious varietal wine. Uh, it doesn't matter Pinot Noir or Merlot or Chardonnay or Sauvignon Blanc. Um, so uh, we are 100% behind of uh, producing low yield and low quantities uh, wines. The other thing you do here uh, that's quite distinctive is is bottle age for quite some time. Your current release wines, uh, I've been tasting wines uh, from the 2014 vintage. Um, you're holding things back for quite a while. Why are you doing? Well, uh, pretty much like a, a good Bordeaux or a good Burgundy. Uh, we feel like uh, uh, we have put so much time and effort growing the best grapes. Uh, getting the best barrels, using the best uh, techniques and the wine making. So we don't want to uh, rush and make an early decision to release the wines when they are not uh, at the peak of the optimal level to be enjoyed. And we feel like our wines, uh, so the red wines, they can each, uh, age five or six years, and then we release the wines. And there are wines that it can easily age for another 10 years. Uh, they have a bright acidity. Uh, the oak is there, but it's not really intense. Uh, we're looking for more of the complexity of the of the oak of the wines. Uh, we feel like the the wines when uh, when we bottle they could be a little bit jumpy, so we'd rather have the wines settle and rest in the bottle when they are ready and release the the wines when they are at the on level. Miguel Martin at McCall Wines on the climate of Long Island. So what are the signature grapes? Well, some would say the Long Island wine regions are defined by the Bordeaux varieties. But the truth is that there's a dazzling array of different varieties grown very successfully. Christopher Tracy is the winemaker at Channing Daughters. Yeah, I think that's what sets us apart is um, our strength is in our diversity. We can grow successfully a wide range of white and red varieties and make an astonishingly uh, large array of styles uh, through sparkling wines, white wines, pink wines, skin fermented white wines, red wines, and sweet wines um, in all different styles. Obviously, there is lots that we can't do here on the east end of Long Island, but there is lots that we can. And uh, certainly the region was built on Merlot and Chardonnay, and those are still hugely important to Long Island and to us here at Channing Daughters and make lots of Chardonnays. in different styles, in fact, sometimes four or five different styles of Chardonnay, um, and use it as a blender. And the same with Merlot, as a red wine, as a pink wine, as a sparkling wine, even as a matterized sweet wine. Um, so, and then two varieties like Tokai Friulano, Pinot Grigio, Malvasia, Muscat, Ribola Gialla, Sauvignon Blanc, Gewürztraminer, uh, Pinot Grigio, Pinot Bianco. There's just a, a wealth, and um, besides the Bordeaux varieties, in, in addition to Merlot, Cabernet Sauvignon, and Cabernet Franc, which does quite, quite well here, there's um, varieties like Syrah, and Petit Verdot, and Lagrine, and Blaufrankisch, and Dornfelder, and Rafosco, uh, that also just make dynamite wines. So, um, yeah, we're lucky. We're, we're in a Goldilocks position with climate change, at least for a generation or two, um, which may or may not be a... a, a, a it is what it is. Mm-hmm. And um, so, again, we're able to make a, a quite wide uh, array of really delicious, distinctive wines that reflect our place. And uh, you make uh, a flight of different uh, rosés, uh, all 
variety specific, which was uh, my eyes lit up when I saw the bottles uh, before me because I love my rosés. But um, why is it so important to you to make as many rosés as you do? Because we like wine with food. And so we're always looking for different wines to pair with different occasions and moods, foods, people, occasions. And so we have a rosé for every day of the week and can pick one of those seven, depending on who you're with and what you're eating, to make sure you have that perfect, delicious experience. And we sort of feel that way with all our wines. And we like to celebrate the specificity of things down to maybe a specific variety within a specific block of a specific vineyard. Um, And then obviously we work outwards from there. But being able to do that Um, with rosé and make them all the same way from different varieties, from different sites, and see the distinct differences in them um, is eye-opening for uh, a beginner or, or, you know, an expert. You love rosé, don't you? We love rosé. It's delicious. I mean, the wines can be taken seriously or can be um, played with in a frivolous manner, too, especially if you make them at a high quality. Then everybody can enjoy them from throwing them back to sitting and pondering them. So, yeah, rosé should be more celebrated. At its worst, and not here, I should say, rosé is kind of a byproduct. It's often blended, and it's blended sometimes to smooth out some sort of irregularities and so forth. Um, You are going out and out to sort of show off the varietal character in each of these seven rosé wines, aren't you? Absolutely. Yeah, we think um, the individual characters of the unique qualities is what makes something beautiful um so yeah we like to celebrate the differences and we don't want to homogenize or try and put something in a box and we don't do that with our wines anyways i mean we'll look for consistency of style but we'll let the vintage speak through and we're not going to try and push a wine one way or the other to make it work it's we want it to plus that's a lot of work yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm struck by um, the number of um, varieties you have here that to someone who comes into your tasting room um, would be unfamiliar. Um, you do a bit of experimental stuff like skin contact. I mean, it's, it's experimental might be uh, underselling it slightly. But um, do you find that when people come into the tasting room, um, they're in any way intimidated by these varieties they don't know and these methods they don't know, or are they actually embracing of it? No, I think they're more embracing of it. It's We work hard with everybody that works here and everybody that works here really loves wine and tries to make it as approachable and simple and delicious as possible. So we go out of our way to explain people. People can select different flights and and have it honed down. So if they're just interested in pink wines or just interested in white wines or just interested in red wines, or if they want to taste a spectrum, they can do that too. If they want to taste vermouths or fortified wines, they can. And and we can spend time honing on the various qualities and aspects of those things and, and opening people's eyes. And, you know, from Again, from somebody that might know nothing, you have a great opportunity. They come in here and say, oh, I don't like white wine. And you can say, well, try a skin fermented white. It's completely different. And you like these light reds and their world is cracked wide open. They have a whole, you know, new possibilities waiting for them. So, yeah, I think it's and luckily the wine world is becoming less and less um, pompous and elitist and more and more diverse and open and encouraging. And so we've always tried to celebrate that. And so we tend to foster that and see that. Yeah, well, hooray for that. Christopher, thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Thanks for taking the time to come visit. So where does Long Island fit into the wine zeitgeist? Well, the answer is that the wines have tapped into a trend for fresher, lighter wines. Amy Opiso is general manager at Lieb Cellars, and she tells us more. 
I really feel like what we're able to do here because of our climate and because of our terroir and the fact that we are in a relatively um, cool climate, but we are moderated by the surrounding water. So we're surrounded here on three sides three sides by influencing bodies of water, which actually extend our season. So what that does for us is it allows us to have a longer extended growing season, which builds flavor over time, um, but keeps the wine, the grapes sort of low alcohol, and then makes, we're able to make wines that are, like we had just said, a little bit more European and subtle and elegant and food friendly in nature. But while, um, while having like really expressive flavor. So it's almost like we are able to achieve that sort of um, perfect balance of being uh, low alcohol, um, bright and fresh, but also getting a lot of flavor out of our wine. So I think, um, you know, we're, we're very lucky that our region sort of um, gives us that. That's what Mother Nature gives us here. And you've been doing this uh, commercial role for a decade. Yes. Have you seen uh, people kind of waking up to this um, style from uh, New York? Yes, definitely. I mean, I think um, I lived in New York City in the, the 2000s. Um, and, uh, you know, there was, even for sure, like, I, you know, I was a foodie there. I worked in wine. Um, and there was... This um, and even, you know, going out to dinner there and, and being able to, you know, expense, have expense accounts. You were we were buying big, bold, opulent wines. And I think that that is not cool anymore. You know, when you go to New York now, I think the restaurants and the sommeliers have come around to the idea that those wines necessarily aren't the best complement to their foods. And um, consumers are sort of coming around to that as well. I mean, I've seen for sure a big shift in um, reactions that we get, especially from New York City consumers when guests come to our tasting room. I think years ago, you know, 10 years ago, they would try a Cabernet Franc, for example, and say like, oh, this doesn't taste like cab because it wasn't a big, like bold, jammy, um, you know, California wine and now the reaction is simply like oh this is like a delicious wine and um so i think there's i think we're in a we're well positioned um in the fact that consumers are really starting to enjoy and appreciate lighter style wines and um, restaurants in New York City are as well. I think, you know, like I said, there were the New York restaurant scene wasn't entirely friendly to New York wines a decade ago, but that is for sure now slowly changing. You are seeing that change, are you? Yes, for sure. Um, I, you know, when I lived in New York City in the 2000s, I think in the in the seven years that I was there, I remember going to, because I'm from the North Fork. So it was, you know, exciting for me to be able to see a New York wine on a restaurant list. And in all the times that I ate out there, I think there was one wine. It was a Pellegrini Chardonnay that was on a list at a restaurant in Midtown called Eatery. And I like, you know, jumped up out of my chair when I saw that because it was so rare for that to happen. And now um, that is changing, definitely. As we, as the wines are getting better, the restaurants are, um, you know, there's, 
more of that farm to table movement going on. And, you know, that's mostly happening with food, but it's also happening with craft beverage as well. So it's not, I think not maybe happening as fast as us wine producers in New York would all like it to, but it's a much friendlier selling climate in New York City now than it was a decade ago, for sure. And you're never going to be kind of conquering the world from uh, New York State, let alone Long Island, because in the grand scheme of things, it's still pretty tiny here. Right. I mean, if you think about it, one, New York City is the most competitive wine market, one of the most competitive wine markets in the world. So, I mean, do we expect our wines to be at every restaurant in New York City? No, because every major, you know, notable wine region in the world is trying to sell wine to these, to these, let's say, you know, 40 spots on a list. And we're one producer out of thousands and thousands and thousands. Um, but also, like you said, we're not capable of, we don't make enough volume here for that type of market presence as well. So we only presently have about 3,000 acres under vine, which, um, you know, relative to most of the major wine regions in the world is tiny, tiny, tiny. So um, we, you know, we're lucky in the fact that we do have a very strong built-in tourism base because of our proximity to New York City. So the majority of the wine that we do sell on Long Island is sold direct to consumer. Um, But there are producers like us that see the value in wholesale and having partnerships and and building credibility through restaurant partnerships. So we do reserve some of our wine for wholesale for that reason. Long Island also presents optimal conditions for growing the champagne grapes, uh, particularly Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. So much so that it has a very successful winery dedicated only to making sparkling wines. It's called Sparkling Point. Gilles Martin is the winemaker there, and he explained to me what defines those wines. So I would say that although we're not in that situation of Champagne or some places in England, we don't have those chalky soil, we do have very nice loamy soil, sandy loamy soil that help grow the grapes. The grapes, the vines are growing very nicely into those conditions. The difference that I would uh, note or I would point out for the sparkling is that we are trying or I'm trying to have the perfect ripening of the fruit in terms of flavors into the grapes. So the aromatics of the grapes is going to give us those very specific sparkling. And although we might not have that minerality that's part of the Chablis or Champagne uh, Chardonnays, we do have a very intense aromatic flavors into our wines. There's a real uh, and pronounced and very delicious pear note to your Chardonnay here, isn't there? Which is really reflected in uh, the sparkling wines. Yeah, Chardonnay actually is doing very, very well on Ogan, like in a lot of places in the world, I have to say. And, and but particularly for the uh, champagne ripening of that specific grapes, we do develop those nice pear, busk, commis flavors that are signature of our wines. If you were using that same variety for still wine, for like we say, barrel fermented uh, Chardonnay, for example, like in Burgundy, you will develop more the orange, the tangerine uh, uh, flavors, the uh, even the confit flavors, orange flavors uh, for that variety. 
And you choose here only to make sparkling wines um, and a, a whole range of, of different uh, styles. Uh, why do you choose just to do that, only sparkling? Well, it's because actually nobody really had thought about that before. And then when I first came in the area, coming from that champagne world, uh, I said, why not, actually? And it happened to be at the right time. Sparkling champagne consumption in the world has been increasing a lot the last 15 years. And we uh, kind of ride that wave of, of uh, development into this, this world. So being also knowledgeable about those wines, being able to make a wide range. We have more than uh, 14 wines available, uh, sparkling, different sparkling wines. Um, that was, for me, as a winemaker, a way to create new uh, wines, new sparkling wines that were not available in the area. So we have, for example, a straight Chardonnay, we have uh, a blend of Pinot Noir, Blanc de Noir, we have a Brut, which is a classic wine, we have also the exceptional Brut Seduction, which is an eight years age wine on tirage, uh, which develop a full amount of uh, brioche and, and, and uh, toastiness into uh, this uh, wine. So it is a way to, to bring to this place, the new world, a range of wine that were not existing before. And you're uh, French by birth and raised there too. Uh, you're steeped in champagne experience, Dutz, Roderer. Uh, you've made sparkling wines elsewhere in the world too. Um, what um, kind of uh, attracts you here now then? Well, First of all, it was love. <laughs> my, my wife uh, met my wife and uh, we decided to um, actually settle here uh, on Long Island. Although she's a French citizen as well, she's also uh, working in the States, in New Jersey to be exact. And then in order to, um, you know, start a family and grow a family, we decided to uh, settle on Long Island, which is a beautiful area with very fantastic landscaping and, and, and the weather is not bad at all neither. And um, so that's how I settled in New York, which I never thought I will. <laughs> but um, it's, it's a new area. It gives you the opportunity to do new uh, uh, creations in terms of wines. It's all a challenge to uh, address and to uh, conduct. And I think it's a success today. Yeah, and you're getting some serious uh, recognition for the wines that you're uh, producing here. These are no novelty. These are really serious wines that you're, you're producing here. Uh, I don't want that to sound patronising at all. I mean, I'm just very, very uh, surprised and excited by, by what you're uh, creating here. You're uh, actually a bit of a pioneer, really. Absolutely. Um, I, I think that's the uh, great thing for us French people who, uh, when we are working in the homeland, we're kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, completely uh, into a carton or whatever you want to call it uh, in terms of uh, regulations. And we can't really develop uh, whatever creative side of us we have. We have to follow the appellation uh, rules and and do so, although we're doing well over there too. Once those winemakers like me, analogists like me, analog, 
uh, go overseas, we feel completely freedom. And here we are, wanted to develop something new. And it's the creativity is, is it's part of the success of a business. And I think that's uh, what we see a lot of us uh, around the world, success uh, or being successful, thinking that we can do other things that we could do in the homeland. The thing is, we have an education, we have a philosophy that help us to succeed. And that's the most important part. We mentioned the Chardonnay. We should give um, the, the Pinot Noir and the Pinot Meunier uh, a mention too. So just talk about the, you talked about the character of the Chardonnay grown here in Long Island. Just mention the Pinot Noir and the Meunier too. So Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, two varieties, very close and so different. Uh, Pinot Meunier with a lot of elegance, a lot of cherry characters, very uh, uh, bringing a lot of finesse and elegance to the, to the blend. Um, the Pinot Meunier, a little more bold, a little more like uh, red current uh, and some years so uh, fantastic in terms of intensity into its flavors. The combination of those uh, varieties brings fantastic blends. And, and champagne, sparkling wines, it's always been about blends. A year you're going to get better results with the Chardonnay, a year you're going to get better results with the Pinot. We take advantage of that and make the blends depending on that vintage. And that's the very beautiful part of our work. It's like a painter with his colors. We got to recreate or even so invent our colors and put them on the canvas and then, and then draw whatever we have to draw to paint the beautiful picture of what the wine becomes. Mm. If you were going to showcase one of your wines to someone who'd never had a sparkling wine uh, from uh, New York, from Long Island before, um, which of your wines, uh, it can be you know, any budget, that's not a consideration, which wine would you show to someone to show what is this area is capable of creating? So two wines. Okay. The first one will be well, what we call the Brute, which is like a Brute classic, something that you're going to uh, appreciate from a lot of wineries uh, uh, in Champagne. Um, it is a perfect blend of those three varieties, Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier and Chardonnay, uh, and delivers a fantastic panel of uh, aromes and, and as well, or aroma, as well as um, a, a nice length and, and a beautiful uh, uh, effervescence. Mm -hmm. And the second one is what we call the Brut Seduction. Because here, like the name says it, we want to seduce you. It's a, a wine that's been aged uh, eight years on the yeast, which brings a lot of uh, buttery and brioche and uh, toastiness to the wine. And also those fantastic aromatics from the uh, three varieties is kind of combined into a, a, a complexity and, and, and a very uh, great dimension in terms of uh, flavors into the wines. And it's a wine that that's, has been winning tons of competition because of its specific flavors. Mm. And having just tasted the 2012 seduction, I think that's a very good recommendation because it's absolutely delicious. Gilles, thank you very much indeed. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Gilles Martin at Sparkling Point Winery. Well, as you might imagine, with its proximity to New York City, wine tourism is big business for Long Island. Amanda Rivera is the creative director at the RGNY Winery. 
I think being somebody who was born and raised on Long Island, uh, you're very aware of the fact that there's a wine region here. But people who are looking to go out to Long Island from New York City or further out on the island really are looking for things to do that are different from like, you know, they're, they're surrounded by all these buildings and all of these things. And they want to come out here and enjoy like the fresh air and be surrounded by the vines and the farms and the nature and stuff like that. And we really offer that here. And it's like a really, really beautiful spot. So we're constantly trying to figure out like how to be the place that when people go out to, from New York City here, how can we attract them to our vineyard and what can we offer them? Okay, well, what do you offer them then? Uh, tell us. Yeah, so we like to focus on experiences. So our tasting room is more than just that. We're an experience space. We do things like uh, private and guided wine tastings. We do wine blending sessions. Uh, our blending experience is something where we offer people the opportunity to learn how to be a winemaker for a day. So essentially, they'll try uh, four different varietals of uh, red grape and they'll, they'll basically take that come up with some percentages, make their own wine, and take home a bottle of their favorite blend afterwards. We also like to do things like experiences and on-site events, including like a Help Us Harvest, where we actually have the winemaker and the field crew teach people how to harvest grapes during harvest season. We do a stomp party, where we have people actually stomp on the grapes, like that old tradition. We also do bonfires, live music, so we're always constantly trying to like push the bar. And being that we're also uh, Mexican-owned, we do some cool things and add some Mexican twists to some of our experiences, including our brunch. We do like an authentic Mexican brunch and also celebrate Dia de Muertos every October at the vineyard. And it's really important that wine kind of engages with people beyond, you know, buying in a liquor store or a, a wine shop. And it sounds like you're really doing that with bells on, really. Yeah. So all of our flights even come with little tasting note cards. So if you get a flight here and you want to have more of a hands-off experience, you're still learning, right? The artwork is featured on the card. We have... Uh, our, our tasting notes there for you to, 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 you know, look at and to experience yourself. And if you want a hands-on experience, we're constantly doing things like that. All of our staff in the tasting room are very knowledgeable about all of the wines, about the property, about the region. And, you know, we, we really try to encourage people to do those experiences where they can learn and we can lead them through. Even our tasting is something where it's not just a normal average tasting. We actually pair each wine selected by that staff person that day with a specialty item that's either from Mexico or, or from, that's offered in our tasting room. So it could be a cheese, a meat, uh, a pecan, whatever it may be. But we're always trying to take it to the next level, not just how do you taste wine, but how do you now go home and pair it with something that you enjoy? A good point then to segue into um, the RGNY story. Uh, tell us about the winery, its history, and then its kind of present day kind of ownership. Yeah, so uh, RGNY was originally Martha Clara, which was owned by a lot, a lot of New Yorkers will know this, but the famous Entenmann's Bakery family. In 2018, uh, the Rivera-Gonzalez family from Mexico purchased the property and rebranded to RGNY in 2019. Uh, the Rivera-Gonzalez family has had a vineyard in Paris, Mexico for the last 25 years. So they've been doing winemaking and taking care of a vineyard for a really long time at this point. And they kind of decided they wanted to expand into a new region and thought that the New York, specifically Long Island region, would be a fun, new, challenging place to kind of expand um, with completely different climate than what they deal with in Mexico. So um, that's kind of the history of the region there. Yeah, and you have a lot of grapes here as well, don't you? Yeah, we have 14 different varietals on the property. So, we're, you know, we're, we're constantly figuring out like and having fun and being innovative and trying to create different types of interesting wines with that. And also, obviously, every year during harvest, we focus on, you know, how did, how did the season go? What are the grapes? Like, how are they? How are they looking? What's the best wine we can make out of these interesting grapes that we have here? Um, and, you know, just kind of really focusing on that minimal intervention, um, not adding things to our wines and focusing on like, 
taking what the vineyard has to give us, doing what we can with it in the tanks and, you know, really expressing the region in all of our product. And I really enjoyed your Sauvignon Blanc, real cool climate Sauvignon. And that's, um, turns out that's kind of your favorite as well, isn't it? It is. I'm a big Sauvignon Blanc fan and not to be biased, I do love ours. Um, I think it really expresses the region well. Like I said, our focus with especially our Cielo line, which that belongs to, is to kind of be like, what you see is what you get. If you're getting a Sauvignon Blanc from the Long Island region, this is what it should be, and that's what it tastes like, so. Well, let's drink to that. Amanda, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much. Amanda Rivera at RGNY, talking about the important role of wine tourism for Long Island's wineries. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode, in partnership with Club Onologique, the world through the lens of wine and spirits. So New York is an emerging region, uh, most especially for vinifera grapes, but its wineries are winning increasing international recognition. And here's the evidence with an impressive performance at the IWSC this year. Uh, These wines assessed alongside the world's greatest wines by uh, panels of international judges. Huge congratulations to Boundary breaks for a gold medal achieved with the 95 points that it won for its 2020 ice wine. Uh, This is based up in the top of the state in the Finger Lakes. Uh, The judges said a lovely inviting nose of intense white peach, pungent lime and ripe pear skin with extra layers of crystallised ginger and candied orange peel. The palate is intense with some mineral notes and a fleshy feel, sweetly balanced and perfectly held up by lifted acidity. Well done to Boundary Breaks for that gold medal. Here are some other really strong contenders, uh, as judged uh, by our panel, overseen by Alistair Cooper, MW, uh, including me, uh, Dan Belmont of Good Wine, Good People, uh, Philip Reinstaller, head sommelier at Trivet, and Marianne Rodriguez of Berry Brothers. Uh, congratulations to Hosmer Winery for a strong silver medal, 92 points, for its limited-release Cabernet Franc 2020. Uh, the judging panel said this, vibrant, displaying great typicity and expression of fruit. The nose is bursting with aromas of juicy black cherry, leading to a, s- a streak of minerality and a pleasing flavour of bell pepper. Wolfer Estate, uh, you heard its co-owner and winemaker Roman Roth earlier, uh, won a strong silver as well, also 92 points for its Wolfer Estate Kaya Cabernet Franc 2019. Uh, The judging panel said this, dark berried fruit with a touch of sweet spice and rose petal characterised the nose, followed by flavours of black currant leaf and toasty oak. Very attractive with great fruit concentration. So well done to uh, Roman and his team. Uh, Lieb Sellers, uh, you heard uh, there as well. We talked to uh, Amy. Uh, They won a silver medal for their Cabernet Franc with uh, 90 points. Our tasting note says this, uh, a bright, lovely example with pretty hedgerow perfume and notes of red plum and cherry. Delicate smoked meat tones and pepper spice add complexity to the palate. Sublime, we said. Another silver medal winner for another grape that really shines up in the Finger Lakes uh, with its cool climate. It is, of course, Riesling. 
Red Newt Sellers uh, won silver medal for the Knoll Riesling 2017. Our tasting note says this. Concentrated and harmonious, brimming with floral notes of honeysuckle and citrus blossom with flinty mineral undertones. Ripe orchard fruit and lime citrus reveal themselves on the palate. There's impressive fruit purity, we said. And finally, for this particular selection of wines, well done to McCall Wines. Uh, We heard it's GM uh, Miguel earlier on talking about the climate. It's Reserve Pinot Noir 2014 won a bronze medal. A tasting note says this, harmonious and well-balanced with an attractive brooding berry character and hints of spice and charcuterie. A delicious wine. Uh, Well done to McCall. Uh, That's it for this Long Island special. Uh, Do go back and have a listen, if you haven't yet, to our Finger Lakes special from last year. Uh, It's on the back episodes on the Food FM website and also on your uh, player for podcasts. Uh, Do look out for those New York medal winners at the IWSC.net. My thanks to my lovely hosts on Long Island. And thank you to you for listening. You can find... My wine column at clubonologique.com. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter. I'm Mr. Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. For now, though, it's goodbye. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique, the world through the lens of wine and spirits. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.